This week I'm chatting with best-selling crime writer Jim Kelly for our second episode in a series about crime fiction which celebrates the launch of our new crime and thriller writing masters at the University of Cambridge. Jim's latest book is The Mathematical Bridge, the latest in a new series called Nighthawk. The books are set in Cambridge during the Second World War and follow the adventures of Detective Inspector Eden Brook. Jim's books focus on landscape, the Black Fens in the Dryden Mysteries, the North Norfolk Coast in the Shore and Valentine books, and the dark lanes and alleys of Cambridge and the River Cam in his newest series. His last proper job was as the education correspondent for the Financial Times, and he is also the winner of the Crime Writers Association Dagger in the Library Award. I should probably also let you know that we're married. We talk about a whole range of things to do with how Jim writes, including how his love of TV crime drama led to a career writing crime fiction. We also discuss why you should write about what you know, and we take a look at Jim's experiences as a local reporter and having a father who was a detective at Scotland Yard. We think about how looking at things with a reporter's eye can help a book to emerge. For example, how a tiny detail like the labels on wartime evacuees can lead to a major plotline. We also talk a lot about plotting and how crime fiction actually always has two separate plots. Jim tells me how to pull a plot apart and see whether it works without breaking it completely and explains why a mess on a dining room table means that the plot is definitely not working. Finally, we cover why locking yourself into a room to write will never work and how being married to another writer is mostly a very good thing, even if you disagree about non-fiction. Now, have you been inspired with a brilliant book idea in the middle of the night? Are you a crime fiction writer or reader? Do you have a favourite Jim Kelly novel that you'd like to recommend? I would really like to hear about it. You can email me at midge.gillis at tutor.ice.cam. Dot AC dot UK. Hello, Jim. Hello. <laughs> Jim, who lives in Ely, Cambridgeshire, is the author of 16 crime novels. Jim, could you tell us just briefly about the three different series? Yeah, um, they're kind of defined by landscape. So the, the first series is based in what I would call the Black Fens, which is that area of peat north of Cambridge and running towards the sea. And the second one's based on the North Norfolk coast and is sort of half set in King's Lynn in the kind of dark heart of a old town. Uh, and the rest is based along the rather beautiful coast. And the third series, which I've just started, is based here in Cambridge, right where we're sitting, but uh, in the Second World War. OK. So so who are the, the main sleuths in each of the three series? Well, in the first one, I took the old advice to uh, write about what you know. And so um, the uh, the sleuth is a uh, reporter on a local newspaper, which is what I did for uh, 20 years yeah. old. Um, and then uh, the, the second series, the sleuth is a detective inspector who's kind of broadly based on my father. Uh-huh. You, keep, you haven't given us the name, so what are the sleuths called? Oh, um, the uh, the sleuth in the Black Fens is called Philip Dryden, mm -hmm. um, and the detective inspector on the North Norfolk coast is Peter Shaw, mm -hmm. um, and the third sleuth is Eden Brook, and he's the historical character from Cambridge. Right. Um, I mean, in terms of uh, um, plot, it's 
always interesting to look. I mean, the name of the sleuth in a crime novel is kind of so important. Yeah. It kind of kind of strikes a note. So uh, the most Delphic of those is probably um, the first one, which is Dryden. And I think, uh, you know, we tried for a very long time to find a good name mm. which would capture the landscape. And then a good friend said, have you thought of actually just doing the opposite of what yeah. you're thinking? So we'd we'd gone down the whole wet route. <laughs> we'd done river and dike and all sorts of things. Yeah. And then dry was yeah. the opposite. And I wanted it to have a kind of poetic ring, a little bit of a... Uh, uh, a nod to Marlowe, I suppose. So we got to Dryden, mm-hmm. that word. So um, um, Peter Shaw up on the coast lives on the beach. So Shaw, mm-hmm. pretty obvious. Um, and Eden Brook, he was originally going to be called River. Yeah. Because uh, I wanted to kind of base it around the cam. But in fact, somebody got beat me to River. That's a really good name. And then I, saw, I sort of downscaled <laughs> to Brook and then realised that once I got to Brook, I was actually very close to Rupert Brook. Mm-hmm. And so that was a kind of, that worked. Right, I see. So how did you first get into crime writing, making stuff up, having been a journalist? Um, well, I think I was always into making stuff up and actually the interlude is being a journalist <laughs> <laughs> when, when I was not allowed to make things up, which is a bit of a strain, really. Hmm. Um, and uh, I eventually happened upon the idea of writing crime, which is completely obvious in reverse, but was not obvious at the time. What do you uh, mean? Well, I think I always wanted to write, but I didn't know what I wanted to write about. I didn't have the kind of stuff, mm. the material. Mm-hmm. Um, and then considering my father was a you know, detective at Scotland Yard, uh, a friend just over kind of lunch just said, well, have you, have you not thought about writing crime? And I, I, love, I love watching crime on TV, uh, and I was a big enthusiast for it, and it was just kind of blindingly obvious, but I never really thought of it. Yeah. So what kind of cases did your dad work on? Um well, I suppose, I think the thing about police work is that it's much more mundane than everybody mm. sort of thinks. So most of the time it's pushing bits of paper around and he was quite a senior uh, detective. But he, he worked on the Hanratty case. Yeah. Uh, he worked on the great gold bullion robbery. Um, and so, I mean, he did several high-level uh, cases. And, sp- and he worked on the murder squad for about a decade. Yeah. So he would have gone all over the south of England on murder cases. Mm. And, you know... I. But he, he didn't really talk about uh, work. And I think he always thought his role in life was to make sure that me and my brothers n- never got to meet any of the people he spent most of yes. his life with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, all that does is increase your um, curiosity yes. about that life. But I suppose you had a sense of what a um, policeman's working life at that level would have been like. Um, and I wonder if any of his characteristics, his physical characteristics, appeared in any of your characters. I think so. I think I think it's it's more. I mean, he did really never talk about it. But the thing is that he did project a character, mm. and I think that's what I've been able to uh, to get to. Yeah. Uh, because I think you kind of would have guessed he was a policeman. Yes. <laughs> in lots of situations, even if you didn't know. So there's a kind of sort of sense of authority, um, and also something I picked up actually, which is really useful as a journalist, that if you ask a question knowing that you have the right to the answer mm-hmm. it's amazing how often you get an answer yeah and because he was able to do that because he did have a right to ask mm. the question as a journalist that's kind of debatable but it still works yeah um so i think he had a you know there's a projection of authority uh and taking charge of things 
and sort of knowing how things work behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. I always got that impression mm-hmm. from him as well. I mean, I never met him, but mm. he sounds like he was quite a natty dresser and quite aware of how he looked. He used to say that he'd, you'd always catch him looking at his reflection in yeah, a Yeah, he was quite vain. Window. Yeah, was quite vain. He was quite good looking, quite big. Uh-huh. Um, and so I think, yes, he was aware of what he looked like. Um, but as a, as a policeman, he always just wore white shirt, black tie, suit. Uh, and then he sort of retired from the police force and went into the city. And suddenly he'd start turning up in these kind of flowery shirts yes, and sort of yeah. all this sort of stuff. So I think that was always kind of there that he sort of wanted to show off a bit. But it yeah. was kind of controlled by the police. Yeah. And does there, any of that find its way into any of the characters in the three series? Yeah, I think there's a sort of um, stillness in all three characters, uh-huh. which I think is very much him. Um, and a sense in which you don't give stuff away. Mm. Um you know, you don't let other people know. I mean, down to trivialities like not letting people know which football club you support. Uh-huh. Or, you know, everything's slightly a secret mm. because you're just in the background. You don't want to sort of come yeah. forward. But also, you like people who also keep their distance. There's a distance thing in there as well. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose that, from a reader's point of view, makes the character more interesting because you're you're gradually finding out more about them. Yeah, there certainly was nothing upfront about it. Mm. Uh, so it's there's that sense of being given a gift, isn't there? That the, when characters like that tell you something, it's really rare. Yes. And so that's what sort of prize. Yes, I suppose it's a bit like Morse, isn't it? And not knowing his first name. Perhaps. Yes. Mm. Yes. So let's talk a bit about plot. Yep. <laughs> Who do you think's good at plotting? Do you take inspiration from any crime writer? Um, yeah, I think I think it's really underrated. Mm-hmm. Good plotting. Um, I mean, Dorothy L. Sayers has always been my sort of. Uh, uh, you know, I think she wrote beautifully, but I think, and she she managed to hide the amount of work that goes into the plot, um, and I think that's sort of key. Um, I think one of the problems is what is a plot? Because mm. you said in your introduction about you know all books have a plot, yeah. and I think there's a danger of thinking well, so all books have a plot, and therefore uh, crime novels have a plot. So there we are. Um, and actually, I think that uh, crime novels have a different kind of plot. Mm-hmm. In fact, most of the time they've got two. There's the the story of what really happened. Yeah. And then there is the story as you're going to tell it to the reader, which has to disguise what really happened, yes. but has to be a story in its own right. I mean, I've got students, you know, who I work with, and I think that is the biggest mistake that people make, that they think once you've got your original story, the book is about revealing that story, which it is to an extent, but it has to reveal it while telling another story. Mm. So in other words, as soon as you start reading the book, stories need to start and people have to have motivation yeah. and you need to be interested. You can't just have a book that kind of plods its way yes. towards a reveal at the end. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've had students say things like, well, the great thing about this chapter is uh, the reader won't know this, but at the end it's very important. <laughs> well, no, because yeah. the reader won't get to the end. So it, it has to have its own internal motivation. So mm. as it were, story two the one that you tell the reader, uh, has to be as good as story one, which is the one that lays hidden yes, for most of the yeah, book. Yeah. So that sounds incredibly difficult to plan uh, as a writer. 
Yes. Can you tell us how you do that? Physically, um, how do you plan a plot? Um, well, I think you just have to recognise that it's... Um, it's a, I think the big difference is that that secondary plot, especially, actually, is mechanical. It doesn't, you know, if you're a really good writer, the reader will never think of it as being mechanical, mm. but it's mechanical. You know, it, it's got cogs and levers and wheels and things like that, and you've got to just work at making sure it all fits together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that very difficult to do in my own head because you're basically manipulating abstracts, mm. which is really hard work and incredibly difficult to do. So I think you have to externalise the plot. You've got to get it out of your head and be able to look at it, I have to. Yeah. Anyway. And so there are various ways in which you could do that. So you could um, uh, draw the plot up on a, a blackboard um, or you could use report cards for each chapter yes. and map out. Um, I think the key is I've, I've had um, students, I've said, you know, can, can we have a, have a look at this plot? And so I've said, oh, we'll try a report card, you know, have a report yeah. card for each thing. What they do on the report card is they write yes. what's in the chapter. Yes. And th- I think that is a crucial mistake, th- not to use writing, but to use some kinds of symbol or yes. colour or something. Because if you use writing, all you've got is a short version of the book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's incredibly difficult to yes. manipulate. But if you use, um, so for example, I might use like a, 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 a red spot for action. Mm-hmm. So you put the red spot on the card where there's action in that chapter. Then when you lay all the cards out, you can see where action is in the book. Yeah. And then you can think, well, there's a socking great hole in the middle of the book. But there's no action. Mm. So can we move action back into that? Yeah. And so you begin to manipulate the plot, but it has to sort of have symbols you can't yeah. manipulate whole lumps of idea around mm. it. Well, mm-hmm. I can't. So it's seeing the, the bigger shape of the story. Yeah, and and seeing it as mechanical. So that um, y- you might have a, a character appearing in a, in a certain spot and then you look around it and think, well, actually, this would be much, much more interesting if this character appeared after that happened, mm-hmm. not before that happened. Mm-hmm. And so you can move that character around and then you know you can start playing with things like you know tension and... How much are you telling the reader? How, how much yes. are you withholding? Yes. And it, it just gets much easier when you um, do it like that. The The other thing I do is I use big sketchbooks, mm. so blank paper and a great big blunt pencil so that you can just write ideas. But you circles. can't actually write too much. Exactly. So it's yeah. got to be with a, yeah. a big stroke. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So you've, you've got to write, you know... Um, uh, so you've got a suspect who's X... So at this point, um, we discard X as a subject, as a suspect. So X, no longer, su- not suspect. Who next? Mm-hmm. Then the, yeah. The, but you've got to deal in the big blocks and then come down to the detail. Yeah. Otherwise, it all just gets yes. too much. Yeah. So I'm disappointed you didn't say that I painted a whole wall in our spare room I know. with blackboard paint. Yes, it was and very that, good of you. And you did. You used that for quite some time, didn't you? And yeah. then people used to come and stay and add bodies where they shouldn't be and then yes. wipe bodies out. Yeah. Well, people were terrified, weren't they? Because it was the spare room and yeah. they used to sleep under it. Yes. And then wake up and look at, you know, killed in mourning or yes. something. Yes, not the on. most welcoming. No. But the, it worked brilliantly. And what, one of the things there is that that used to be the room I worked in. Yes. And the thing is that the plots can become overwhelming. And so you get, you're working away, and I'm thinking, oh no, does this really? How does this? And you can just look at the wall, 
and that's all the whole plot is right there i don't even have to engage with it mm. it's just there fine back to writing so yeah. it's like getting it out of your head somewhere so that it's not cluttering up what you're actually doing. Yes. And now you work downstairs in the dining room. And do you, I? Yes. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's what you claim you do. And sometimes I'll come down and there'll be lots of um, little index cards mm. all over the, covering yes. the dining room table. Yes. And to me, that signifies that maybe something's gone wrong in the plot and you need to move them around. Is there any significance in that or is that just no, the point you've got? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So the... Um, at the moment, what I'm trying to do is simplify a plot, mm -hmm. which has got too complicated and has kind of uh, set. And so I need to kind of free it up. Yeah. I can't do that just by going into it. I've got to be able to stand back and yes. look at it and think, okay, um, I, need, uh, I need to bring this thread of the plot to an end much, much earlier so that it's not complicating everything else. And then when I've done that, I need to move to this bit so I can move the cards around. Mm. Um, it's a good journalist trick, which you will remember, which is that um, it's quite a good idea to write chapters which sort of float on their own. Right. So although they may refer back and forwards, they kind of have a life of their own. Yeah. And it means it's much easier to move them uh -huh. because they sort of exist. They have a place and... a internal sort of logic yes um whereas it, if if everything is those kind of chapters you know that pick up on the last one and then lead on and throw to the next they're really dangerous because <laughs> as soon as you start moving them yes they're not connected at either end yeah uh-huh and also they're a different they have a different pace don't they if they're like that so you yeah. can use them in different ways more effectively yes I, you know Sometimes, and it's it's quite good fun to write in this vein, a chapter has got, say, some action or something in it, and it immediately leads to the next one. It has to lead to the next mm -hmm. one. So the next one comes, and that has to lead to the next one. So you might get, like, three in a row, and they're great to write because you know the reader will, will just have to go on reading yeah. the next one. So they can sort of hang together. But generally speaking trying to keep them in a bit of a compartment makes this bit much easier you can move mm -hmm. them around mm. so do you think you plot in a different way now kind of all those books on mm. yeah yeah so i think before i used to kind of sort of set out and hope that something would sort of happen mm. <laughs> which would lead to the next thing and then hit something and then uh, that we'd sort of run along and um and now i probably uh try to over overdo the architecture a bit and it they probably could be simpler so you know it's it's a constantly moving um target um and i'm always not quite on the target so it's mm. either too simple i mean the real problem is what's going through your head is <clears throat> will the reader work out what's going on yes and if the answer is yes it becomes more complicated to avoid that and if it's no then it becomes simpler so mm. you're constantly bouncing between those two things mm. And um, the question that's very difficult to answer, mm. where do you get your inspiration, your <laughs> ideas from, which kind of leads into plotting, really, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's about um, detail, observed detail. And just sometimes the detail is what sets the whole thing off. So recent examples would be, I mean, I'm writing an historical 
series now, I'm looking at lots of photographs of uh, evacuees mm -hmm. arriving in Cambridge and the um, the labels. Yes. You know, you just think, hmm, that's, that's, that's quite a good place to start. Yeah. Um, so you're seeing things with a, a detective writer's eye, aren't you? Because to yeah. me, that would just be a label. But to other people, that's it. I guess to someone like you it would be, oh, that could, what happens if the wrong child yes, gets the wrong exactly. label? And I, I think it's the... My favourite answer to this question is from uh, Ian Banks, the uh, well, he was a science fiction writer, wasn't he, and a, a writer in many other things. He was asked, where did you get your ideas yeah. from? And he came up with a great story, which was that he was driving in Texas, smoking with the window down, and he was on one of those long roads where the two carriageways are separated by about half a mile so that they don't crash into each other. And he noticed that he was smoking. He threw the cigarette out the window, and other people were smoking. And they'd obviously started fires. And uh, so sometimes on the right of the road, it'd be all brown, but on the left it would be green because the fire won't cross. And then occasionally there was a fire, obviously between the two roads, and so it'd be brown. And then ahead of him, he'd see the red flames of this fire progressing, and he thought, "Well, that, that's amazing. What if?" these two roads ran parallel for 100 miles would that fire just progress along between the two but what if the road went right the way around the equator would the fire go all the way around the world and when it got back the grass would have regrown so it would have gone on forever and what if it's not a road what if it's just land around the equator and it's gone on for 20,000 years and all of the plants and the animals and intelligent life is is bound into this cycle of the fire going around the world. And what if that is a planet? And what if we're approaching that planet? Yeah. <laughs> and that's where he gets his mm -hmm. ideas from. Mm -hmm. So from a cigarette out the window, yes, he's taken a detail and leveraged it up. And I think it's it's that's the thing, the leveraging of a detail up into well, what if that happened and that's yeah. interesting that would happen I think that probably comes with experience but I think some people's minds work like that a bit mm. and I think mine does probably yeah I think that's maybe also because you're a journalist so I think you do have um, an eye for a good story or for a detail yes and I think you uh, are quite unusual in that you get out uh, quite a lot and you don't like working in the same place yeah you work in the university library you work in lots of different cafes you kind of move a lot, don't you? So you're always observing when you're writing. Yeah, and it, I mean, and I loved being uh, a journalist, but I particularly loved being a local journalist because there was always the idea in the morning that on the way to work I could see a story, which you can't do. You know, I work for the Financial Times. I'm not going to see an FT story on the way to work. <laughs> but, you know, when I was working in York or somewhere, you're constantly looking for a little detail that tells you that there's a story. And that's great fun, especially when it sort of comes off. Yeah, and it also is about getting out and about, isn't it? It's kind of talking to people. Um, you know, yes. you don't have to be a good writer. You don't have to be locked in your, your attic, do you? Uh, no. I mean, I tried that once, and that was a disaster. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think it's one of those it's one of those appalling models that just gets constantly peddled, doesn't it? The idea that you know, have yeah. to sit down and sort of, you know, plug through something. Mm. And the one thing that's changed over time is the amount of time I actually spend writing has gone down. Mm -hmm. And the amount of time I spend mucking around before I write has mm. gone up. And I think to, to my benefit. Yeah. Um, because 
the chances of you having a me having a, a really good idea while sitting in front of a screen is pretty much zero yes so you know you, you need the ideas before you sit down and to start mm. so you've got these three series mm. um what are the perils of trying to carry a plot over more than one book um well yeah uh in my case, crippling. I mean, I did it once and I would never, ever do it again. Yeah. Why did you do it? I think it was because I started something um, and I thought, well, that's, that's a really good plot, but it's a bit of a sort of slow burn. And I've got a, a, another plot which will only last the one book, so I'll kind of throw it forward. Mm. That'll be all right. Yeah. And then start the second book. And then, of course, you've got to pick up from where you left off, yes. which is when you realise that you've closed off lots of avenues by mistake mm. and you're left with a plot that mm -hmm. isn't really going to go anywhere. And then I've still got another book to finish it in. Yeah. So by the time I got to the end, it was really, really very difficult to write constrained by the things I'd already put in the other two books. Yes, yeah. So you would advise against that. Yeah. I mean, I think there are some genre where it really, I mean, clearly, you know, uh, Harry Potter's not a uh, about it. although she you know she occasionally got things yes. wrong I mean what's but, but I mean that's a good plotting story I mean I think by a country mile the best of the books is the prisoner of Azkaban mm -hmm. and that was the one where her, the plot fell apart on her mm. and she realized that it didn't make sense yeah and so she had to stop and if I remember, work out how to make time run backwards. Yes. And so the book is twice as long as she thought it was going to be. And I think it's easily the best book. Because she was forced to be inventive. Exactly. In I think it's just got an internal life, whereas the other ones seem to be mm. moving forward. You know, it's, it's a great joy. But I mean, it's, yes. I just think it's a yeah. standout book. Yeah. So we watch a lot of uh, crime on TV. We do. Um, and it's a bit irritating watching TV um, crime <laughs> with you, you because... Often, but not always, you spot who done it. Yes. Um, but what do you think is good about the plotting in a TV crime series, and what do you think they? Where do you think they often fall down? Well, coming back to the the, the two plot level thing, mm. I think they're brilliant at the the second plot level. Yes. So keeping you going in the moment that you're watching, and it is a completely different experience from reading a book. You can't stop, go back have a think about it mm. and then carry on so you know you're being carried forward in a drama and that's what they do really well mm. but i think you know we're, we're familiar with the feeling of watching closing credits and thinking hold on a second <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> none of that makes sense yeah. in retrospect mm. but you know you can enjoy the that plot the running plot mm. but often it reveals the fact that they haven't really done any work on the plot that yeah. was underneath the one that they were going to yeah. reveal so what do you like watching on tv particularly in terms of crime <laughs> Um, well, I think at the moment we're uh, enjoying Endeavour. Yes. Um, but there again, I mean, that's largely character-driven because the characters are wonderful. And in fact, I, certainly in the last series, there were several scenes in which there was no plot. Mm -hmm. It was simply two of the characters talking about an issue. Brilliantly acted, uh, wonderful to watch. Um, but the, the plots themselves are, you know, fall down really quite badly yeah but they're still great fun to watch yeah. it's quite difficult to think of something on tv where i've really enjoyed oh well true detective yes 
This is the American series. The the American series, Mm -hmm. which is, I always think, you know, could have been set in the Fens, but Mm. it's actually just set in sort of southern America. Um, And there was a plot underneath, and I thought it was beautifully calibrated, the degree to which you discovered the plot underneath. Mm. Yeah. Um, So I think they did both things well. They, they, They had you there in the moment but also they paid off. Yeah, I can't remember the plot at all. I just remember the, the opening credits, brilliant characters, yeah. fantastic sense of landscape. Yes, and also a, a sense of um, the bizarre. Yes, the, yeah. Kind was, of. There was always something uncanny about yeah. every sort of shot. Yes. And that's why I thought it was very Fen-like. Yeah. I remember there was one particular shot. Uh, I think there'd been uh, a murder or something at a church. and It was one of those like tin sheds yes. with a huge cross on an open plain and behind it about five miles away was a huge petrochemical works which just kept coming into Mm. and out of focus as they were so it was just wonderful yes and that guy on the sit-on lawnmower yeah he just kept thinking you don't want to have your grass cut by him (laughs) he's trouble yes um i should probably ask you what it's like to live with another writer um well, it's been uh, it's, it's fantastically useful. Don't put it in the past tense. It's been. <laughs> trying to tell well, me something. No, I would say up until now, it has been fantastically useful. With your current wife, yeah. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Um, well, it is really good because I think there's a third kind of plot, actually, which is um, with students. I was uh, trying to get to this concept, and we always have a... Uh, 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 an ideas bucket yes a theme bucket and so any book should have a couple of big themes Hmm. in it so the one i'm writing at the moment has probably got looting is one of the big ideas uh the whole series has has got lightness and darkness Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like a stew so the book is going to get written with those things in it Mm. um and i think uh both being writers we tend to knock those kind of ideas around quite a bit yeah i don't even think we're doing it yeah but they're there and so that's very very helpful because mm. i think in the writing that gives you depth mm. because a lot of uh, genre writing kind of um skates and it's not a lot of fun if you're a reader if things skate I mean, it's great if it's a kind of fast thriller or something, but but if you're just kind of flying through at one level, uh, it's very unsatisfying. I think just occasionally you want to hit an idea. Yeah. Um, and um, the easiest way is just to get the main character to kind of recognise the idea yes. eventually. Um, but those things make it, I think, much more varied writing. It means you can slow down, mm. circle the theme... Uh, and then move back into the the plot. I mean, the, the present book with looting, I was sort of, you know, uh, is the war and the looting did go on. And I had a character and I was thinking, well, where will I put this character? Uh, and I decided I'd put him in the Fitzwilliam Museum because, of course, it's, it's largely full of items that have been looted. <laughs> right, yes. And so, I mean, I don't even have to say that. You yes. just have scenes with people yeah. surrounded by Egyptian yeah. mummies and all sorts of things, yeah. discussing how awful looting is. Mm. <laughs> uh, so it just gives yeah. a depth, I think. 
And I think the fact that I write nonfiction so makes it much easier. So we're we're not in competition in any way. And I think we can no, talk although, about writing. Although, a I think we've had some spirited arguments about what constitutes nonfiction. Yes, let's not go there. <laughs> we haven't got enough time. So I'm just going to ask you some quick fire questions. Right. So you don't have to answer them quickly. It's just okay. that you don't have to answer them at length. So where do you write? Um, well, again, it comes back to that um, <clears throat> the old story about the you know being in the garret. Yes. Um, I've switched over the years lots of different places. Mm-hmm. So I've been in allotment sheds, um, stuck in a room on my own. Um, now it's the dining room table or it's the university library mm. or cafes. Um, if I analysed it, I think that one of the things I need is that when I'm writing, if I look up, I've got to be able to see a distance yes. and not through a window. Right. Because that's too distracting. No, no, it's fine. Uh, it's the the window seems to stop your thoughts and yes. gaze, and you bounce back right. to where you were. Yeah. Whereas if I look up in the university library and I can look sort of you know a hundred yards or something. Yes. There's a kind of there's air. I don't feel claustrophobic, and it's almost like I can take a break from that thought and then come back. Mm-hmm. But if I was up against a you know in a cubby hole, I'd feel that the thing was just knocking around. Yeah. I think. Do you write anything at all by hand at any stage in the process? Only the cards. Right. And um, you do actually write little things in your notebook as well, don't you? Oh, yeah. No, I've got lots of so notebooks. So you carry that around with you the whole yep. time. Yeah. And, and always write and, you know, get up in the middle of the night and write it down if, you know, because you'll, you'll never have the idea again. Yeah, it just Never goes. believe you'll have the idea again. Yeah. Tea or coffee or something stronger when you're writing? Um, uh, start the day with coffee, then on to tea, almost non-stop on the tea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then um, espresso mid-morning, back to the tea. And then probably tea all the time. Never anything stronger before writing. Uh But I think it's a really good time to play with themes and plots and ideas after having a drink. Right. Okay. Um, Morning, afternoon, evening or nighttime writer? I think morning really. I think um, you've kind of got to... You have got to give it your best shot. And for me, you know, the best shot is the first four hours of the day Mm -hmm. and then uh, some kind of break and then come back and then if I can make myself have another small go or think about tomorrow that's quite helpful music radio silence when you're writing um usually some noise music's fine but far enough away not to be discernible but not complete silence okay do you have a daily word count yeah so um a thousand words, uh, but only with the added subtlety that if I cut words out of an existing piece of the document, they count as a plus, not a minus. Okay. Does anyone else read your work before you send it to your agent? Yeah, increasingly, actually, I think over time. So I think there are now at least three or four people who have proved to be fantastically helpful, uh, amongst whom is yourself. Yes. Um but uh, I think those three or four people all bring something quite different uh, to the process. And it's been very, very helpful. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm very surprised at how helpful that is. Yeah, and you return the favour for them as well, don't yes. you? Sir, yeah, choice. absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, and that, actually, on plot, that is fantastically important because um, I think there are, there are, there are plenty of uh, editors who can love a crime novel and stuff like that with actually don't really understand the plot yeah. and haven't really checked it. So 
you need somebody who's really knows how to plot to check that your plot works yeah so with you who would that be that's chris sims yeah so i i, I read chris's stuff he reads mine yeah and he's and, another crime writer. yeah and, yeah. He, and he's, he's very good on on plot and i think would spot anything that was missing yeah whereas i wouldn't i'm not very good on plot i just think oh this is nice writing carry on yeah maybe i mean th- that's that's fine because i mean 999 people out of a thousand who are reading it aren't mm. following everything but i think it eventually it makes a difference if the plot is absolutely airtight, I think it kind of holds the writing up. There's something about the confidence yeah. of knowing it's and, working. And I think I would also say, I can't remember who this person is, so that's quite useful to yeah. think the reader needs a reminder at this yes. point. Yeah. Um, do you believe in writer's block and what do you do if it strikes? Um, I, I, no, I don't believe in it uh, in, in my particular case, mainly because being a journalist for 25 years, you know, uh, excuse me, news editor, I can't work today, doesn't really... Yeah. Kind of hack it really. I mean, I do think it's a vice probably because I, I do think sometimes you can end up writing when you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to bin stuff. And even if you bin it, what you then write is contingent on what you threw away. If yeah. So you've kind of you've made a misstep. So stopping the misstep, I think, is something that hopefully will come with time. Yeah. Cat or dog? Uh, I think all cats in the world uh, except one dog. Okay. Which one dog is that, Jim? <laughs> that would be Scout, our dog. And what kind of dog is that? It's an Irish terrier. Named after? Um, Scout in um, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. You might as well name the cat as well, I suppose. Midnight. Yes. yes. Okay. Um, and what advice would you give to your younger self as a writer if you could go back in time? When things are going really, really well, think about doing something different. What do you mean? So I just think like the first series of books, I think when they were going really, really well, that's the time you should be thinking, what else could I do? Mm-hmm. You know, don't plug on with something that's working until it, you kind of you're needing to find something else to go to because that actually takes quite a bit of time. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, so when things are going well, think about things not going think so well. Think ahead, yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Okay, Jim Kelly, thank you very much. Thank you, Mitch Gillis. And that brings us to the end of this episode. I want to thank Jim Kelly for hanging out with me. And if you would like to find Jim, you can look him up online at jim-kelly.co.uk and on Twitter, where his handle is, at the water clock. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can email me at midge.gillis at tutor.ice.can.ac.uk. If you have thoughts on crime writing or writing suspense or reading suspense, I would love to hear them. And if you want to get in touch to find out about any of our courses or to ask me any questions, please feel free to email. I love hearing from you, so please do that. If you have an idea or want to suggest a guest or a question for us to cover on our podcast, or if you want to tell us about a book that has got you thinking, email me at midge.gillis at tutor.ice.can.ac.uk. So on behalf of Jim Kelly and everyone here, we wish you the very best of reading and writing in every genre, and we hope you have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you back here next week.